unfortunately, the guy popped up about 50 meters to the right and uh, hit us with an RPG at point blank range. Went right, exploded as it went through the aircraft, took out three redundant electrical systems, uh, which was all, all of them, <laughs> which are geographically separated for just such a purpose, but it got all three of them. <laughs> this is the Low Level Hell Podcast, episode 28. Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast, a program that explores the world of rotary and fixed-wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army helicopter pilot, Brian Harris. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show, episode 28 here on the Low Level Hell Podcast. And uh, apologies for the long delay. I know we haven't had an episode here in, gosh, about two months. Uh, and that is 100% my fault and uh, technology. So I actually did an interview with a guest. And uh, to keep a long story short, basically it didn't record properly. And uh, about 90% of what he said was uh, not recorded. So I uh, went to edit that, discovered that. And, of course, uh, this was you know days before I left. Uh, to start my new job. So I was away from the house for about a month and uh, just got back about a, a week or so ago. Uh, but we're getting back into it. I just did uh, this interview yesterday. Uh, today is the 26th, so it'll be a couple days before I get this out to you guys. Uh, but I appreciate your patience. Uh, appreciate the uh, Patreon supporters uh, understanding because, you know, I always feel like I'm letting you guys down. Uh, you know, you're 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 throwing money at me and uh, and supporting things, and I and I know that I probably take it a little bit more personal than than you guys do. Uh, but I do think about those things. I do care about it, so I apologize for the delay, and hopefully uh, today's episode will make up for that. Well, we can talk a little bit about the new job. I'll leave that for the back end for people who don't care, uh, but just kind of give you an update of what's been going on uh, with me and the new job. And uh, But otherwise, we're going to roll into this interview. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. I had a great time talking to Alan and hearing about his experiences, and I hope you do as well. Alan Mack joins us. He flew the CH and MH-47 in the 160th Night Stalkers, and he's also the author of a new book that's coming out called Razor 03, A Night Stalker's War. Alan, thanks for joining us. Hey, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, coming on, and uh, hopefully technology will will not be the bane of our existence as it has been here, just getting set up, but yeah. uh, we'll, we'll fight through. Uh, but yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and how you got started in aviation. All right. Uh, well, uh, you know, when I was growing up, the Vietnam War was going on, and, you know, every night at like five or six, depending on what time zone you're in, you know, the news would come on mid-show videos of, you know, news clips from overseas. And there was always these uh, UH-1 uh, Huey helicopters flying around, right? And, you know, even as a young kid, I was like, ah, that's what I want to do. And uh, that dream kind of went away for a while until I joined the Army. You know, I, I went in, I was like, you know, hey, I heard you can join the Army, you know, high school to flight school. And they're like, well, hold on, kid. You know, uh, why don't you join as an aircraft mechanic first? You know, kind of learn <laughs> aviation and then go to flight school. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. And so I joined as a, uh, a prop and rotor mechanic 
uh, did about nine years uh, before I went to flight school. And uh, that's how I got into flying. And what year did you go to flight school? So I went to flight school in 89 out of uh, Germany. So I was in uh, West Germany just before the wall came down. I'd actually been in Berlin, uh, East Berlin, uh, that previous year. And then I was off there at Fort Rucker uh, in 89 and into 90. And you were, as a mechanic, were you on Hueys? Yeah. Uh, so I, my first assignment was in Korea in uh, 1981 uh, in the 4th 7th Cav up in, um, I don't remember the name of the, the little town, but it was up north in, in South Korea. And I did a year there working on Hueys, Cobras, and OH-58s. And then my next assignment was Fort Bliss, Texas. And we I was in another CAV unit there, uh, Air CAV Troop, which had, same thing, had uh, Hueys, Cobras, and um, 58. So it was a, the old H-series T-O-N-E. So we had like, you know, 20-something aircraft. And right. uh, from there, I went to Germany into a VIP unit in Mannheim, uh, 56 Aviation. We had Hueys. 58s and C12s and U21s, and I got flight school out of there. So I, I have a lot of listeners that that are either getting set to go to flight school or in flight school. I get emails from these guys all the time. Uh, so tell us a little bit about like what flight school was like when you went through. Uh, uh, yeah, flight school when I went through. I don't think it's changed that much. I mean, other than the um, you know they've broken up the phases a little bit, so maybe it's not quite as uh, extensive. But, you know, you, back then you started out going to uh, Alpha Company, uh, the walk school itself, uh, which I think was about eight weeks. And, you know, they shave your head, you know, for the walk special. Uh, so everybody kind of looks yeah. the same. And it's good anyway because you're going to crawl through mud and dirt and sawdust and you really don't want that stuff in your hair. Um, we did a lot of uh, what we call cubing, which was uh, your cubicle was your, your bunk, your locker and your dresser and desk and they had to be set up a certain certain way you know which anybody who's been to you know uh any of the nco leadership schools knows that kind of stuff as well but the unique thing with walk school <laughs> was that you could break a window with your t-shirts you know i mean they were rolled so tight and and uh, you couldn't use starch i think we used sizing and we would we'd fold them up iron them in a in a certain like a um how'd you put it like a uh, like a little like a, like a mold almost that you put your shirt in and folded it a certain way, wrapped it in a for sale sign with rubber bands and stuck it on your lamp and baked it. You know, I mean, this, this is the insanity of, <laughs> of, of walk school. I mean, you, you know, in hindsight, you could probably go through and just sort of half-ass roll your stuff and take all the demerits and you'd still get through. But, you know, right. the, they, they harp on the fact that it's attention to detail. And, you know, when you're pre-flighting an aircraft, you, you might miss a cotter pin if you can't pay attention to how you're, you know, your socks are rolled, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, we do that. And, you know, at night, you know, your bed had to be a certain way, like with a, a white collar, you know, the, the sheet folded about a six inch fold at the top. Yeah. And so guys would take, um, masking tape and bankers clips and, uh, clip it all in place. And then you kind of slide into your bed at night and you were so tired, you didn't <laughs> move anyway. So in the morning when the, you know, trash can lid started getting banged you just uh you slid right out you pulled off the clips and the tape tucked it in and it was done and uh that was kind of crazy <laughs> you know whoever thought of that stuff you know I, I don't know but you know that was like the the bullshit side of it the the other part you know obviously was the physical aspect trying to get you to quit 
you know, think Navy SEAL Hell Week, but not nearly as difficult, <laughs> you know, although right. in your mind, you know, you think it is, you know, and right. you know, the, all the, the push-ups and the mountain climbers and the leg lifts and crawling through the mud and, and just being miserable and them yelling at you, just go upstairs and have some donuts, you know, and this is all over, you know, and some guys would take mm -hmm. it and uh, other guys didn't. And then you know, they come in and be like, we're going to do that again tomorrow until half of you quit, you know, and that's a, yeah. it's a lie, but you know, it's, you don't know that. And uh, then obviously you move on from there uh, to flight school itself, Bravo company. And uh, you know, you start flying, you know, with your instructor and there's still some cubing, you know, you're, you're in a room now instead of an open bay and you have a roommate and uh, it's the same kind of stuff. I think about six weeks you do that. And then you get this big phase inspection that lets you move back off post, you know, with your families. But in the meantime, you're learning how to fly and you're studying. And one of the advantages I think I had was that because I had worked on Hueys, you know, in three different units, and that's what we learned in, um, those yeah. UH-1s, that I knew all the systems. You know, I already knew how the right. transmission and rotor blades and all that stuff worked. So I didn't have to study that. You know, I could, uh, emergency procedures, uh, meant more to me. Like they, I understood them better because I didn't, it wasn't rote at that point for me. I kind of understood what yeah. was happening. So I could yeah. focus on things like, you know, aerodynamics and airspace and, you know, some of the other stuff. So other guys like my roommate, you know, uh, you know, he had a hell of a time cause he had to learn the aircraft systems as well, you know, but, uh, right. you know, you get out there and you, you do your solo, even though you're with a stick buddy, you know, it wasn't really solo per se, yeah. but uh, it's not like he's going to save you, you know, just right. Both, yeah. Both you're going to die. So, and then, you know, the most amazing thing in my entire aviation career was probably learning to hover. You know how it is like that first couple mm -hmm. of flights and nobody can hover. And then, you know, they're like, you got to find the hover button, you know, or they're going to kick you out. And then like the first guy that does it, he's like the, you know, the God of the aviation community is like, yeah. Oh my God, he learned how to hover. You know, and you're like, Oh, I'll never learn. And then, you know, yeah. one day you yeah, it's only day in, four and he's hovering already. <laughs> right. And then, you know, one day you, you just come in on an approach and you just start hovering and you're like, Hey, yeah. oh, hovering. How the hell this happen? And that, well, for me, it was, it was a distraction because and I've probably told the story on the show before, but I remember we were holding short to cross one of the lanes at whichever stage field mm -hmm. and, you know, and I'm wobbling around, you know, I'm, I'm hovering, but it's, it's not controlled. Yeah. And, uh, and the instructor pilot, he's like, Oh, look at this guy coming in on his auto. And, and I looked up at this aircraft and suddenly it was fine. You know, it's cause I wasn't overthinking it. Right. And right. then he, and then the instructor, he's like, look, you're doing it. You're hovering. And as soon as he said that, we were back to wobbling and, and riding around. But, oh, yeah. but yeah, that's an interesting time trying to figure out how to hover. And there must be something so to that distraction because I learned the day I learned we were doing what they call emergency governor operations. So, you know, mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a Huey, you know, if you lift up on the collective or down on the power, uh, you know, the yeah. engine compensates for that with a governor. Right. So emergency governor, you're doing it all by hand, like you would in the old TH-55. You know, if you raise the, yeah. you know, collective, you had to adjust the throttle. You know? Yeah, we would do that in the Kiowa too with the FADEC fail. Right. We would have right. to manually control it. Yeah. Right, and that, and and so I'm trying to do that while hovering, you know, 360 degree mm -hmm. turns before I've officially learned how to <laughs> hover. And you know, by the time we came back in uh, after an approach, I think we went and got gas at Wolfpit. 
I came back and uh, that's when I was hovering. I was like, wow, this is so easy, you know? And yeah. after that, you just never forget. It's just all muscle memory at that point. Yeah, it's it's too easy to overthink hovering. It's just let your body kind of do it, you know, do its thing. Yeah. And then, you know, we went from, um, from Bravo Company where you're doing, uh, you know, that kind of basic skills to Charlie Company where you're, uh, we were seniors at that point. So we were treated like officers. Uh, back then you weren't a warrant officer until you graduated the whole eight months. And um, that's where you did tactics and, and stuff. like. That. And we had a really good time. I had a good instructor, uh, you know, we're out flying, you know, low level formation, navigating off our one over 50,000 maps. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was, that was a lot of fun actually. And that's yeah. why I always wanted to do uh, assault, you know, assault work, you know, like I saw in the, the Vietnam stuff is the Hueys coming in doing the assaults. And, yeah. uh, you know, at the end of flight school, I got, uh, the, you know, the, um, the Chinook community at the time, was all very senior, you know, you know, the, the most junior guy in a Chinook unit typically was a W3, you know, W5 didn't exist yet. So they're all W4s, you know, it had a major as a commander and it was kind of a reward for a good career. The problem is they all retired at the same time, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, the only thing the army could do was reach out for W1s right out of flight school. And, uh, in my case, I was lucky enough, uh, my stick buddy and I got selected for Chinooks. And, and I remember getting mad that I got Chinooks. I was like, I don't want Chinooks. I want to do assaults. You know, they just fly mm -hmm. cargo all over the place. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, much later in my career that obviously changed, but, um, yeah. It, and then, you know, I got out of flight school and, uh, in Chinooks and Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, you know, and that's, uh, begins my adventure. Yeah. So where was your first duty station when you got out of flight school? Yeah. So my first duty station was uh, Savannah, Georgia, Hunter Army Airfield, which was in the 24th ID at the time. Yeah. And I was the only, so I showed up, I was the second W1 to get there. The, another guy from the class ahead of me uh, had just got there, just made RL1 uh, and, you know, as a co-pilot and, but he was a really good guy. And, uh, so when I came in, they had that same expectation, like, you know, you better be as good as this guy or you're done, you know? <laughs> and, uh, right. you know, so I had a good role model in the junior sense. And then, you know, there was a group of the older guys that just kind of took a liking to us and, uh, made sure we were trained up and, uh, did things the way we were supposed to. And, and I, I can look back at that, you know, my time as a W1 was some extreme fondness, you know, the guys were great. Tell us, uh, I guess, a little bit about the Chinook itself, about the aircraft and, and the mission. And you talked about cargo, but it obviously does a lot more than that. Uh, just, you know, expand on that. Okay. So the CH-47 Delta is what I started in, right? And that was actually fairly new. It was uh, the, the Charlie model. You know, you always hear, you know, if it's not leaking, it's empty, you know, uh, mm -hmm. as far as hydraulic fluid and oil. And that was true of the A, B, and C models. When they created the D model, which is really just revamping the old airframes, you know, they cut the leak points down from like, you know, 1,600 leak points to 200, you know, uh, <laughs> which drastically – and I just pulled those numbers out of my butt, but you get the perspective. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so the leakage was very minimal. You know, you still had, you know, the, the – you know, there's uh, – what is there? One, two, three, five transmissions, right? A forward, aft, combining, and left and right engine transmission. And, um, 
they all work in sync. You know, they're they're all geared together, so there's no, uh, you know, blades hitting blades, you know, that kind of thing, because they're all phased yeah. together and, and locked in place. But you know, the Chinook, it can it can its gross weight can go up to about fifty thousand pounds for the Delta model. I think they they have upped it to fifty four. And uh, you can carry 26,000 pounds on the center cargo hook or 18,000 pounds on the forward or aft hook. Uh, so it's pretty versatile. You can put, you know, a full-size pickup truck inside. Uh, during Desert Storm, 101st put Humvees with towed 105 howitzers in the aircraft. Now, the gun tube was up in the cockpit by the uh, engine control levers. And, <laughs> wow. uh, but it all fit. They just, they land, they drive right off and, and there it was, you know, so it's pretty versatile. I mean, I've done things like uh, fly, you know, snowmobiles in the back, dune buggies, motorcycles, trucks, uh, mm-hmm. armored Humvees, all that kind of stuff. You can carry troops, you know, there's seats for 33 people, they say, but really it's like 28. Uh, you can put a lot more people in there with, with a seatbelt waiver, but you know, the seats are generally about 28 seats, uh, based on how the actual configuration goes. And, uh, it's fast, you know, it's 170, 170 knots, uh, if it's tracked out. Okay. I'd say generally about 150 is its normal, you know, decent speed. You know, you cruise around about 120, mm-hmm. 130, 135 is generally the, the speed you go cross country at cause it's the max range. But, uh, you know, I've had it up to, you know, 170 a couple of times, uh, when, when needed, um, very powerful, you know, uh, they, they use them in Alaska to go up, uh, what mountain is that? Is that I can't remember. Is that McKinley or is that in Washington? I can't remember uh, my geography. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> they go up to about 25, right? they go up to about 25,000 feet, uh, with supplemental oxygen. So Chinook crews routinely train with, with supplemental oxygen, uh, which, became a big deal in Afghanistan. Um, let's see fuel. You, know, you can put an internal tank inside, get another, you know, 500 gallons of, uh, fuel. Uh, generally you can fly about, uh, you know, a D model without an internal tank was about two and a half hours with a reserve. And, uh, the MH 47 echo and golf that I flew had about a five and a half hour, um, uh, fuel range. Because they had what we call oh, fat wow. tanks, uh, hmm. they had pointy nose and a fat fat fuel tanks. Um, <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. The, you know the um, it's an amazing aircraft. It's you know all the same limits that you have even in a you know a, uh, an Apache or a, or a fifty eight. You know same you know bank angle limits all that stuff. You know of course the rate at which it moves is different. I had a little bird guy, an MH six pilot was transitioning to Chinooks uh, a couple of years back. And he's like, well, you know, this big lumbering beast. I was like, oh, really? I said, put it, you know, yeah. 30, 30 degrees nose low. And he's like, uh, uh, okay, this will do that. I'm like, yeah. So he puts it 30 degrees nose low. And of course, you know what that, you're looking at the ground. And he's like, wow, how about that? And I go, now pull out. And as he's pulling out, he's like, yuck. I'm like, what do you mean, yuck? He goes, yeah. that? Because he's used to this little bird where he pulls back on the stick and it's up, you know. And he's like, this, yeah. you got to overcome inertia, buddy. You, you took aerodynamics. But, you know, it does all the yeah. same stuff, you know. And uh, right. uh, it's a lot of fun to fly, really. I mean, the controls themselves, uh, if you were to, you know, take a 58 pilot, for example, and you throw them in a, a Chinook and say, pick up to a hover. He just 
pulls up on what we call the thrust, you know, the collective and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, does the same thing, uh, you know, maintain position with the cyclic, heading with the pedals, you know, that kind of thing, uh, where it's different is above your head and in behind your back, there's a, what they call a flight control closet and everything's kind of mixed and, and adjusted in there. So, you know, we always say, Hey, what happens in the cockpit's like normal pilot shit, but everything above you is PFM, you know, the poor, <laughs> pure <laughs> magic. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, so why do they call it a thrust? Like I've actually, now that I think about it, I've never been in the cockpit of a Chinook. What's different about the collective? So the lore, if you will, is that <laughs> when they, it's because of the way that a Chinook works. Like, you know, when you pick up in a single rotor helicopter with the collective, you collectively increase the pitch on all the rotor blades the same, right? So you, you get right. your lift. And then you cyclically change the direction of the blades with the cyclic, and then you go, you do a directional. Well, in a Chinook, it doesn't work that way. In a Chinook, it's called differential collective pitch. So if you pick mm-hmm. up with the, your left hand on the power, uh, that collectively changes the pitch on all the blades, just like in a regular helicopter. But when you move the cyclic forward to take off, you, you, you use differential collective pitch. You don't use cyclic pitch now like you would. So now the pitch on all the blades in the forward head, you know, decrease and the ones in the aft head increase all an equal amount. Mm. And then you move forward when you move left and right, then it's cyclic. So the, and then the, the pedals, the directional pedals, uh, when you push on them, that is cyclic in nature, right? So they originally in the the very early days called those the cyclic pedals. Then you had the, Mm. they actually called the cyclic, the collective, and then the um, left hand where it would be the collective was the thrust. Well, that became confusing. So they just said, okay, look, we're going to call the cyclic, the cyclic, the pedals, the pedals, and we'll just call this thing over here, the thrust just to differentiate. And that's kind of how it went. Uh, I mean, I can't see any reason why that's not true, but uh, that's what they told us (laughs) along the way. That it was just designed. Now, does it does it look like a collective, like a normal collective, or is it kind of different? Um, yeah, it's different in that um, okay. it, it doesn't have a rotating throttle. You know, so it's okay. it's solid. It's hydraulic assist. It it will only move with hydraulics, and there's a little trigger on it. You know, they called the thrust trigger. Figure the odds on that, right? Mm-hmm. So it's fun. You know, we used to, as an instructor pilot, I would always get the job of flying around, you know, the uh, brigade commander or something like that, you know, and and they would be, you know, maybe maybe he flew a Huey or a 58, you know, Alpha Charlie, you know, and you get in this thing and fly him for like two hours. And he's like, oh, my God, my arm is killing me. And I said, like, sorry, I told you to push the button. And he's like, oh, oh, the button, the button. Yeah, because <laughs> as soon as you push the button, it just moves, you know. And, uh, no, okay. that's about it, but it looks, it looks essentially the same. Like I did fly, okay. um, earlier I was telling you, I flew Hueys, Chinooks, and my last assignment was at West Point flying Lakotas. And, mm. uh, it was interesting to go back to a, a single rotor aircraft with a collective with the rotating throttle and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, the Chinook, very easy to fly, you know, from the you know actual, what I'll call monkey skills. You know, you can, I could t- teach a monkey to fly, uh, yeah. And, you know, you, you pick up on the thrust, it goes up. You push the cyclic stick forward, it moves. You know, you go left, right, it goes, it does its thing. So very, very easy to fly. And if and if everything is behaving, you know, if all the electronics and the hydraulics and the little black boxes that do fancy making it easier for the pilot things to happen, uh, it's a dream to fly. You know, when those don't work, 
you know, you have an automatic flight control system, AFCS, which dampens out, you know, uh, gusts of wind and vibrations and things like that. And they, it holds your airspeed, holds your, your attitude, your heading, all that kind of stuff that, you know, the, all the modern aircraft do. And uh, when that's not working, you're doing it all by uh, hand, you know, and it's very, very difficult. You know, it's, uh, it's like a bucking Bronco, you know, if you're not on it. So yeah. it's like you can imagine flying a, like a, a 58 in heavy turbulence, you know, just being beat to yeah. crap, you know, and, and just being on it. Well, that's what flying a Chinook with the AFCS off is like, you know, but um, other than that, she's a dream. Well, let's talk a little bit more about you. So you went to Hunter, and then from there, did you go to 160th, or did you have another duty station? No. So, you know, I, I went to Hunter, and then um, what was interesting also at that time frame is, you know, the Army was advertising, you know, we own the night, you know, which, you know, all the older guys in my unit would say, no, we rent it. We don't own it, you know. <laughs> and the reason they said that was because there were still people that were not night vision qualified, back in those days, right? So we had a 16-ship company, and only six crews were goggle-qualified crews. Everybody (laughs) else was scared of goggles, right? And, uh, I mean, that's the only way to describe it. They just did not want to fly. They were all older guys, and they didn't want to do that. And Hunter at the time was called Sleepy Hollow because they used to have A-model Chinooks. Even They were the last ones in the fleet. And they went from A's to D's, the Deltas. And, you know, the Delta was, you know, a night vision aircraft. And they didn't want to fly it. So it's, you know, hey, put the Woges on there, you know. And uh, and, and <laughs> we lost an aircraft, actually, uh, in Desert Storm to an unlit antenna because they decided it was safer to fly unaided than aided. Oh, geez. Right. So that's the, the time frame you're dealing with, right? So, so yeah. you know, we get back from there. Um you know, you get all these, well, now everybody wants to do stuff at night because apparently that's the way to do it, right? So, you know, you had Sand Eagle and JRTC and NTC and all these things. And so me, the other W1, and, you know, a couple other guys were the ones sent away on all these trips because they all requested night vision crews, and uh, which was good for me. You know, I mean, uh, I enjoyed it, yeah. you know, but uh, it does go to show, you know, that transition of, tactics, techniques, and procedures and equipment, you know, that these guys weren't willing to, um, to embrace, you know, so they all kind of retired and, you know, guys like me in my time frame, you know, in the, all the follow on people, you know, take it to the next level. And then, uh, I got assigned to Korea, uh, at the hump camp Humphreys. I was a black mm-hmm. cat, which was previously the two thirteenth. We had a sister company there called the Innkeepers, and that was one of those places. You know, it was really an awesome place because, you know, I don't know about the other airframes, but I'd imagine it's the same. You know, when it comes to the Chinook community, you know, the Campbell guys, the Bragg guys, the Hood guys, you know, the Alaska guys all did things a little bit different. You know, it's like having your cousins come over from different parts of the country and, you know, the New Yorker (laughs) and the Texan, you know, get along for the most part, but they do things a little different. And the cool thing with Korea was it was only a year assignment. Everybody had to do it. You know, if you wanted to stay at Campbell, for example, okay, your family can stay at Campbell. You got to go to Korea for a year and you come right back. 
And so guys would take that, you know, keep their family stabilization. But in doing so, you got to know guys from all the different units and you got to learn. Mm-hmm. It was like a big melting pot, you know, it was really, really cool. Um, yeah. because throughout the years, you know, the, the community is kind of small. You, you all kind of know each other, you know, whether you're, you know, teaching at Rucker or working at Fort Hood or, you know, uh, back in the day, you know, Campbell had all, you know, it was like three brigades of Chinooks or whatever it was, you know, and, uh, you know, they since sent those off as the combat aviation brigades, but, uh, that's what it was like there. And then I had an opportunity, um, to go teach at Fort Rucker after Korea. And I did that and I was bored silly. You know, I was a, a CW two, so I'm still a young pilot. And remember I wanted to do assaults and here I am, you know, doing traffic patterns at Rucker. And I got to tell you, my first two sets of students were great. They were like, this is what it's like. This is amazing. And then the guard <laughs> in Alabama turned in their CH-54 sky cranes for Chinooks. And these mm-hmm. were, think about the guys I was telling you about that didn't like to fly goggles. Now you get guys that don't want to fly yeah. goggles and they don't want to fly Chinooks. They want to fly right. sky cranes. But, you know, they're going away and you have no choice. But they took it out on me. You know, like, oh, we hate Chinooks. And you just got to listen to that the whole time, right? You're flying with these guys. Right. And I got... I don't know, four sets of students in a row like that from the same unit. They all had piss poor attitudes and just were, they didn't want to learn from me. They were all W4s, you know, and I'm a W2. They're like, you know, what's this guy going to show us, you know, which is probably true. And then I got a couple of foreign students, you know, from Singapore and Australia. And they were, you know, they had a much better attitude, but, you know, I had to be very, you know, very professional, very, you know, diplomatic and and how I dealt with them. And, When I was in the IP course, I'd met a couple of guys from the 160th and, uh, you know, great guys. And they, when they left, they gave me a, an application said, Hey, Al, you got to fill this out and come, come fly with us. And I was like, yeah, Hey, whatever, you know, and I resisted because guys that were, that I consider better than me had been turned down, you know, and I'm Hmm. thinking, Oh man, if that guy didn't get picked up, they'll never take me. But the thing is, you know, having been in the unit for 17 years after that and doing the assessments, there's always a lot more to it. You know, it's always like right. you know, maybe he's got a family issue that nobody knows about or, or something he did in the past that, you know, it's long past. But, you know, the psychologist may say, you know, not good. Or maybe our timeline yeah. isn't good for him. You know, and he he right. decides not to come, but he blames it on the 160th. Yeah, they wouldn't take me those assholes. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, well, you know, so I'm thinking they're not going to touch me, you know. And, but I, I got so bored that I, I started filling out this packet, you know, nowadays you do it online, but I just filled it out by hand. And when there was no more empty blocks, I sent it in. And a couple of weeks later, the recruiter called me and said, Hey, uh, we'd like you to come up. And I'm like, um, okay. You know, <laughs> so I go up to assess, I got accepted and, uh, you know, then I did 17 years. And the only reason I left actually is I, uh, in my book, I detail, you know, my first wife, uh, my late wife uh, ended up with a prescription drug addiction problem and mm. uh, she ended up dying there uh, from an overdose and the regiment was kind enough to find me another job. You know, and I ended up being the commander of the flight detachment up at West Point and then uh, met another woman. And when the army tried to move me, I was like, yeah, I'm going to retire. But 
and it's getting ahead of myself there. But um, yeah, so record of the 160th really was the the big thing. So uh, were you stationed uh, at Campbell or one of the other battalions? Yeah, I was at Campbell. So when they gave me a choice. Okay. Right. So the the 160th itself uh, in those days. Uh, the first and second battalion were at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. The first battalion has the little bird MH sixes and Blackhawks. And the second battalion mm-hmm. has, uh, MH 47 D's, which they then gave to Savannah, Georgia to the third battalion and, and replaced them with echo models. So 47 echoes. So a new ver- newer version at, at Campbell and the older version went down to Savannah where they had the third battalion. Uh, so 3rd Battalion had Chinooks and Blackhawks, and that was formed uh, by disbanding all the Special Forces flight detachments and incorporating uh, a separate Blackhawk company from what was in Panama, then Puerto Rico, and then they brought them up to Savannah. So that that was the regiment at the time. So I actually owned a house in Savannah from my previous assignment that I'd been renting. So that was in the running. And... While I was at Rucker, one of the pilots from the uh, Fort Campbell unit, 2nd Battalion, was at the IP course. And he, uh, he, somebody had told him to come hunt me down and, and talk to me and kind of feel me out and that kind of stuff. And he was like, you got you to gotta go to Campbell. You got to fly 47 Echoes. And he told me all about it. You know, it's got terrain following radar, air refueling, you know, all this mm-hmm. stuff. And, uh, I decided to try that, you know, I'd never been to Campbell. I'd always heard all these horror stories from the guys, you know, that had been, there. <laughs> you don't want to go to Campbell. Oh my God. They, they camouflaged their faces. They camouflaged the aircraft with nets. Yeah. You know, that's all stuff they did <laughs> at, at some time or another. And they're like, you don't want any of that, you know? And, uh, in this case I did. And I, I'm glad I did. I stayed 17 years and, um, yeah, so I, I went up there and, in the second battalion and they didn't have, you start out with what they call green platoon, which is the, uh, the training co- really a company, uh, where they teach you how to, you know, do like special operations stuff, you know, uh, you know, whether it's shooting or hand to hand combat and, you know, knife fighting. I still have a scar in my hand from learning to knife fight. <laughs> Uh, and then they do, uh, basic skills, uh, basic nav, like, I'm sorry. And you learn to navigate their way and brief their way, you know, with a map clock and compass, you know, and, you know, there in the Campbell area, it's very, it's a challenge to navigate by my map and compass up there because everything kind of looks the same. It's all flat. Um, but, uh, you learn and, uh, that's one of those skills that, you know, just never goes away. Um, and then you go to your company and, uh, well, back then you just went to the company. Nowadays you go through about eight months of, uh, specialized training to learn not only the aircraft, but the missions. And then you t- not only learn the mission, but you go to the environment. So, you know, they'll teach you, you, know, you start out with contact work, you know, here, how you, how you fly a helicopter, you know, and what was cool is we had guys come there to fly Chinooks that were like, you know, 58 Delta guys, Apache guys, Blackhawk Chinook guys. I personally found that the 58 Delta and Apache guys did the best because you had mm-hmm. this glass cockpit, which, you know, they were already kind of used to that concept anyway. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the problem with the Chinook guys is they tended to think like Chinook guys and, and, what do you mean we're doing heavy assault? You know, we're going to land next to a building with right. a bunch of rangers on board. And they're, 
a little bit more resistant to get into it. And then the Blackhawk guys, because that's probably the job they came from, you know, some kind of assault company, there's a little bit of uh, interference, you know, in that, like, they just can't, why are we doing it this way? When I was, you know, in the 101st, right. we did this. Well, you were in a Blackhawk and you're not in a Blackhawk anymore. Yeah. So the 58 and the Apache guys, along with the glass cockpit, had an open mind. You know, they'd be like, uh, you want me to do what? Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> they just do it. Yeah. They don't have any bad habits to overcome. They just, exactly. it's all brand new to them. Exactly. And yeah. it's, a, and they're a lot more fun, you know, uh, especially the 58 yeah. guys. I used to love Cobra guys. Uh, there were still a few of those in the beginning because we go out and do slopes. And I had a particular spot at Campbell. I could get about a 22 degree cross slope and the Cobra guys would just be like, you know, a cat, you know, with their freaking claws out trying to, you know, keep from falling <laughs> over. It's like, dude, we're okay. We're okay. You know, yeah. <laughs> the aircraft can do more than this. It just, this is my comfort level. Uh, you mentioned something that I don't want to, I don't want to lose. It was a while ago, yeah. but you mentioned something, uh, what did you call it? Special forces flight detachments. What is yeah. That? Yeah. So, so, you know, around the, how do you want to say this? So the special forces groups, you know, first group, third group, seventh, right. tenth, they tenth all group. are regionally associated, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, tenth group was Europe, seventh group was uh, South America and Central America, you know, uh, fifth group is, is uh, you know, Middle East, third group is like Africa, you know, that kind of stuff. That's how they're regionally affiliated with their languages and their skill sets. And each of those groups had their own flight detachment. So they had, I don't know, three, four Hueys, you know, so they could go out and do infills and, uh, you know, parachuting and all that kind of stuff, transportation places if they needed it. And, you know, the Hueys were, were getting ready to go away anyway. And the Army at the time said, you know what, we need more uh, special operations lift capacity. So what we're going to do is we're going to create this third battalion of the 160th. And we're going to use, you know, if they're not equal in that, you know, you're taking Hueys away and creating Chinooks and Blackhawks. But the idea was that third battalion would strictly and only support the SF groups that we took all their aircraft from. That was the deal, you know. So all the money that would have gone to supporting the flight detachments now went to third battalion. And the as what we call it, the colors of money makes a difference. You know, there's black money and white money in that, yeah. uh, you know, the SF groups, you know, are, are white money, you know, they're above board, if you will. And the black money is mm -hmm. the JSOC, uh, JSOC funding, right? So it's a different pot right. of money. You know, we just call it colors right. of money. And then even second battalion at Campbell had two companies, two Chinook companies, B company, second battalion did the same thing as third battalion. They just supported, White soft, so regular seals, the rangers, SF guys, you know, that kind of stuff, and that's where their right. money came from, from USASOC. And then A Company, Second Battalion, was its own twelve-ship company, and they only worked for the JSOC units. They did not support anybody outside of JSOC. And if you tried to cross that line from either direction, you know, they were held to be paid. You know, so uh, and that line blurred later on when 9/11 uh, happened, but uh, that's how it was up until that time. Okay. Yeah, I'd never heard of those, but I mean, it makes sense to have at least something there dedicated to help them because that's always always been the thing. Like you had, uh, what, fifth group at Campbell, so you always kind of figured, well, they've, they've got everything they need there, but yeah, if you're at Carson or something, oh, yeah. you probably don't have as much let access me tell you, to, you know, to support at fifth like group, that. So we use the fifth group guys a lot 
for our crew chiefs. So, you know, the, the crew chiefs have these qualifications, you know, where they have to do uh, internal vehicles because the special ops vehicles are barely fit in a Chinook because they're all kitted out differently. Uh, so there's like inches on either side of the wheels and, and you, you, you onload them so they can just drive off, you know, and it's a challenge. So that's, that's a, a qualification, fast rope, uh, gunnery, calls for fire, you know, that kind of stuff. And you need SF guys for that. And they're right there. But the problem is when you fill out your logbook at the end of the night, you put a mission code, like who did you support? Was it training? Was it service support? Was it combat? And if you put fifth group on there because you were supporting fifth group, um, you know, every, it's like once a quarter, they do a big conference at Fort Bragg where, uh, like the AAAC or something like, I can't remember what it stands for, but this is where people would, would schedule, you know, your support and be like, Hey, you know, 10th group right. needs yeah. a couple of Chinooks, you know, and they would brief, you know, like a pie chart. They'd show who got how much time in the previous quarter and fifth group had all <laughs> this support. Right. And th- then they would get yeah. none because look what they got. But really it was our support. So we finally figured out, we just had to put like, you know, T1 training as a code because right. really it was us, but the fifth group guys did benefit from that, you know, sure. and, and the other problem with the group guys, you know, when, um, when desert one happened back in, uh, was it 79, uh, and the, in the one was formed in 1980 in response to that in JSOC, you know, um, the idea was that you would have this unit where everybody knew each other. You know, the, you know, the, the ground assault force knew the helicopter pilots, the helicopter pilots knew the tanker pilots. They knew the AC-130 guys. And in some sense that, that did happen, but it didn't happen quite the way they envisioned because everybody got bigger. But for the most part, if you were working in JSOC, you had these habitual relationships and you knew, you know, at least the troop commander, the sergeant major, you know, that kind of, or the platoon sergeants, you, you didn't know the snuffies, but you knew all of the, the decision makers. In SF support, you never got that because there was so many teams, you know, these 12 man teams are all over the place. And you'd never, even if I went back to 10th group, you know, five times, I'd never see the same people. Right. So right. that habitual relationship never really, uh, transpired, you know, and on the white side, which is too bad because it, you know, uh, I did a lot of stuff in the other side of the line, if you will. And it really made a difference. That's what, uh, you know, in the movie with uh, Mel Gibson there, we were soldiers once and young and he's telling his platoon leaders, you got to get out there with the, you know, get to know your aviation support. They'll, they won't leave you hanging or something like that. And to some extent, you know, he was right. Yeah, that, those relationships matter. I mean, that's there's no debate in that. Um, but like you said, it's it's too big and everyone's scattered all over the place. If you're at Savannah, it's unreasonable that you're going to get to know the people in, in Colorado, you know, right. things like that. Um, okay, so I, I kind of derailed you, but uh, talked about the training. So you're in the company now in the battalion. What what year did you were you like a full fledged member of 160th? Uh, 1995. So okay. 95, 95, really probably 96, I guess is when I was in the company. Cause I think I went to Sear in March of 96. Mm-hmm. So yeah, right. The early part of 96, I was no kidding in the company and, uh, you know, a co-pilot doing my, doing my thing. And, you know, huh? one of the things that was cool about it was that, uh, we were, we, well, we were always gone. I mean, 
you know, we would go in like two to four ship missions, right? And you'd be all of, you know, so we had a 12 ship company and you'd have, you know, guys at home training, guys on the East coast, guys out in the mountains of Colorado, you know, and you wouldn't see each other until Christmas. You know, right. it's like you were with your group of guys, you know, think of a, it really was only one platoon, but think of two platoons of guys, you know, uh, and Christmas would come around and it was like old home week and you know, we'd see each other for two weeks. Hey, this is great. You know, Hey, how was your trip? And, and back then, you know, we didn't have cell phones. It was pagers and, um, you know, email wasn't really a thing for the most part. And so you just never talked to those guys till you saw them at Christmas. And then same thing in the summer, you know, we come home for summer block leave and uh, everybody see each other again. So we would share desks. You know, we had a small office where I was and, uh, you know, I shared my cubicle as a co-pilot with two other guys, but the only time it was a problem was <laughs> Christmas, you know, when we're all there, but, uh, but you go, you know, we'd go out to Colorado and we'd fly up in the mountains, you know, in the snow with skis on the aircraft, supplemental oxygen, you know, uh, you know, power limited, you know, a Chinook is generally not limited in its power. You know, most of the training we did before 9-11 was at, you know, places where you could pick up whatever the hell you wanted. You know, you, you know, Fort Benning, Savannah, you know, Fort Bragg. We always used to say there's always room for one more Ranger. You know, it's like, you know, it'd be like, all right, you can only carry 40 Rangers, right? With a seatbelt waiver. And then like 41 would show up. Sir, there's 41 Rangers. Yeah. Ah, let them on. You know, no big yeah. deal. Right. <laughs> then we got to Afghanistan. It was like we had people on scales. You know, you can have this much weight. Yeah. Well, how many people? I don't know how many people it is. This is how much weight you can have. You know, but we did right. that kind of stuff <laughs> in uh, in training. You know, you go out over the over the horizon uh, on the East Coast or the West Coast. Um, you know, do deck landing. So we did a lot of stuff over water. So we were in the pool a lot. You know, in the dunk, we had our own dunker uh, with a wave machine, the whole deal. And um, the guys always were getting more creative. Like, here, this will be harder to get out. Try this. Like, well, on. how about we make it easier? <laughs> you know, they were putting stuff in the cockpit, like, you know, switches and, and levers and, and handles and stuff that, you know, typically aren't in like the, the Fort Rucker dunker, you know, which is nice and slick. So right. nobody gets stuck, right? Well, no, not yeah. ours. We had to make it harder. You know, it's like, this is much more realistic. Yeah, thanks. You know, but uh, yeah, we did a lot that of that. Sense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were always doing practicing with degraded navigation. You know, here we get this, you know, two GPS, in, in, inertial gyros. Uh, in the early days, we had this thing. Uh, it was a terrain following DTED follower, you know, which uh, mm. went away with the G model. I guess it's back, you know, in a, in a more modern fashion. But, we'd still would degrade down to clock and compass and you still had the same standards. And what was interesting is when, um, we went to Afghanistan in 2001, we were concerned about GPS jamming, right? Cause it's very easy right. to do. And we weren't as well, we weren't as worried as GPS jamming as we were spoofing because nobody could confirm mm -hmm. whether somebody could, you know, alter your GPS signal and tell you you're somewhere you know, you are or aren't. And now we know that they can do that. Right. Uh, so what we actually did intentionally was, you know, we were flying in flights of two for the most part is chalk two would manually degrade to INS, you know, so which turns mm -hmm. out, you know, it's a laser ring gyro. It, it, it's pretty damn good, you know? And, uh, you know, if for some reason, you know, during his backup navigation, you know, lead went in some weird direction, he could say, Hey, check nav, you know, I, I show this, 
and then we could figure out is it a mm. GPS problem or or what? And then you know later on we ended up not doing that, but in the early days we just didn't know, you know. But that's the kind of stuff you would. Train How did you for. guys update your your INS? So we start in manual mode. All we had to do, well, what we learned was uh, it was so good that if you updated it, you generally built in error, uh, operator-induced error. Um, so you'd get a good fix in your parking spot, and then you know you would check it every time you went somewhere. But if it was within a quarter mile, you didn't uh, you didn't hit update. You just let it go, and then it turned out you'd end up right at the building you were supposed to go to. So it's like Maybe we shouldn't be updating this thing unless there's a, a dramatic, you know, problem because you could fly five, six hours and that thing was great, you know. And we also had an AHARS, which is like a cheaper version. Uh, and, and all these navigation systems together, you know, and then, of course, one guy's got GPS and it, and it worked out pretty good because there was a time. I don't remember what year it was, but we reached one of the GPS epics um, where the almanacs were all screwed up for a couple of months. And it would take mm. a GPS, you know, instead of, you know, 30, 60 seconds to, to find itself, it would be like, you know, three or four minutes, you know, and then mm. it, you weren't even sure a couple of times. And it turned out it was a, uh, it was explained to me, it was a, an epic problem with the, with the almanacs in the GPS constellation. So if you were in Afghanistan during that time frame, you know, you're very frustrated with your GPS. It's like, what's wrong with my GPS? And it's, like, it's the network. It's not, it's not the individual hardware. So we... Once again, just relied mostly on the INS for for about two or three months until the until the problem was resolved. So speaking of Afghanistan and and Iraq, I mean, obviously being in the uh, 160th, I'm sure you did more than enough trips over there. I know you guys do uh, typically shorter trips than uh, the conventional dudes, so it's probably probably multiple trips over there. But kind of give us a snapshot of the day in the life of a of a 47 pilot uh, over there. Well, uh, sure. A day in the life, right? So it, it evolved over time, obviously. Um, and we did, our rotations were different, right? So when people ask me, well, how many deployments did you do? I, like, I don't know. Right. You know, I mean, yeah. I've got like, uh, you know, nine hash marks on my sleeve. So you figure the, the time, but how many times I was physically there and back, it, it doesn't really matter. It's irrelevant because, you know, in the early days, so nine 11 happens, uh, I'm in Tampa, the next day, actually planning to go to Afghanistan and do personal recovery for the uh, the bombers that were going to take the fight to the bad guys. And we uh, we went to Uzbekistan. I was in Uzbekistan early October with four Chinooks at a base called Karshi Kanabat or K2. And uh, mm-hmm. our job was if anybody went down in Afghanistan or other places, we would go, you know, try to rescue them. And uh, so that kind of mission is it's stressful but boring because you have to wait for someone to screw up to go do it, right? I mean, someone's got to go down. So you're just sitting there watching the big monitors and the talk, you know, the all the Blue Force trackers and MTX beacons and just waiting. And, uh, you know, the, the challenges in Afghanistan were that, uh, you know, I mentioned that weight and performance were an issue. So oxygen was okay. We had plenty of uh, we had these um, consoles in the aircraft that that fed um, you know a couple of hoses to uh, oxygen masks, and mm. uh, we had Air Force PJs on board. 
you know, the pararescue jumpers, you know, for medical and uh, extraction purposes. And uh, that lasted about two weeks. And uh, once they took out the major air defense network that that still was there, and it wasn't very elaborate, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, an integrated air defense network, but they did have, you know, ZSU 23-4s and SA-8s and SA-6s, all that kind of stuff. So they took all that stuff out to gain air superiority. And then the uh, fifth group guys came in and said, hey, we, we want you to take us, you know, to this place called Masary Sharif, just to the south of it. And uh, that's a very big, long story in itself because the, um, the Northern Alliance, who we were working with, uh, was kind of fragmented, you know, when their leader was assassinated, Masood. You see that in the movie 12 Strong. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. the guy that was his deputy is a guy named Fahim. And then you had Dostum, right? And they were like rivals. But Fahim was a little higher up in the pecking order. And he said if he didn't get his SF team first before Dostum, he would attack Dostum, right? So that's the <laughs> fragility of the situation, right? So, you know, the first guys are going in carrying uh, an SF ODA, it's 12-man team, uh, 555, uh, triple nickel. And they go launch into this, and they're going across pretty much the highest part of the Hindu Kush mountains that are in Afghanistan, about 21,000 feet, and they encounter bad weather, right? I mean, they can't see out the window. Now, the, the MH-47's got a terrain-following radar, but it it doesn't see through rain. It sees rain as an obstacle, Right. So you can go mm. through fog and smoke and dust and snow, but real rain, it just obscures it. You know, if you've ever watched direct TV or dish TV during a big rainstorm, that's what happens. So they couldn't use those tools and they were at 20, I think 20,000, maybe 21,000 feet and they were, uh, you know, turned around. And then, you know, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld is like, get those teams in there. So they launched the next night. Same weather situation. You know, the results are going to be the same. And, uh, they turn back around and I'm all wound up pissed off because I want to get my team in, you know, cause I'm afraid we're going to get like one infill and the government's going to say, okay, we're done. Yeah. No more. Right. You know, and then I got to listen to these other guys for the next 20 years, you know, talk about <laughs> they did something I didn't do. Right. And, uh, cause that but, was the feeling back then that this was going to be so fast and yeah. everyone was going to miss it. Yes. That's exactly yeah. the case. And so the next day, funny story, uh, this major, uh, a guy named Mike, we'll call him Mike. You know, he's uh, he's in the talk. He's the day guy, and uh, gets a phone call. He says, uh, "You know, hello, Major you know, Mike." And they're like, uh, "Please hold for the secretary." He's like, "What secretary?" This is Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah. Who am I speaking to? And he's like, uh, "Major Mike." You know, and he's like, uh, "All right, you get those two teams in tonight." Period. And I hung up, and that was that. <laughs> so we didn't know the difference because we always never wanted to launch the whole fleet at the same time. There was all, we were trying to do spares sure. and redundancy to ensure success. So they actually took one of my, my chalk two and made him a FARP in case the air refueling couldn't be done in the bad weather. So the hmm. three Chinooks went off with triple nickel. I had what was supposed to be two Chinooks load all on my aircraft, which meant I had to get rid of fuel. So I had to air refuel in and out. Uh, which is something we did not like to do uh, to maintain redundancy. And I had a couple of armed Blackhawks on my wing, uh, DAPs. And mm. uh, they had to turn around because of the weather, and we took the terrain falling radar in. And uh, that's a whole story in itself. But we got the guys in, and then the rest of that rotation was 
doing that and then resupplying them. So you'd, uh, you'd have a day off to plan and then you go the next night and then you day off to plan next night. So for seven months, that's what we did. Just constant. They did add a couple of Chinooks to us and then Tora Bora kicked off, uh, late November of 2001. And we ended up at Bagram. So we were the first ones at Bagram. And then, you know, that life actually was a lot of fun because there was, you know, two Chinook crews, the SF guys, some Delta guys, a couple of Rangers. And that was it. There was no Disney highway. There was no lighting, no PT belts, you know, that stuff. And everybody just left you alone <laughs> because we were out chasing Bin Laden. And then, uh, you know, he got away and then we, um, we're doing the cave complexes down there in Tora Bora. And, uh, it's time for us to, to leave. We're going to rip out and uh, they, someone decides, you know what? We're still going to bring some Chinooks in there. We'll bring a company in. That is our other company. And um, they're like, but we got to do this mission called Anaconda first, and then they can swap out since you guys have been there. And that's a whole other story. But the but the day to day activities that you were asking about was just kind of that. And then later on, maybe in 2000, yeah, like summer of 2002, I guess there was a lot. Phone fell over there. There was a lot. <laughs> Sorry, my phone was ringing there. There was a lot of <laughs> um, ash and trash. You know, we we're doing a lot of resupplying of the forward operating bases. You know, Jalalabad, Asadabad, Barrycout, and stuff like that. And you know, people would say, well, "Why are you guys doing these kind of support missions?" Like, because they need to be done, and the conventional Chinooks cannot fly in this weather. You know, because we would use the terrain following radar to get there and had a digital map that was really good. And, uh, you know, it wasn't cool and sexy to you know, do resupplies. All right, we're bringing, you know, food and water in. Well, it's like these guys need this stuff. And, yeah. and, and that was the same thing. It was like every night just going out and doing that, you know. And then, you know, throughout the years, you know, there'd be times where, you know, it's a lot more, we were a lot more aggressive, you know, going after people. And then there's times where, you know, politically it was just not, uh, the right time. You know, we just go do, right. you know, resupplies, you know, and that was kind of Afghanistan, uh, for the most part. So, so you mentioned it and I'm sure people listening are screaming for me to ask. Uh, I mean, let's talk about operation Anaconda if you don't sure. mind. All right. Well, um, Anaconda itself is a, is its own discussion. You know, I mean, it could take an hour, but sure. I'm going to break it down into, so it's a conventional operation. 101st, 82nd are going to go into this, uh, objective ginger and Remington, uh, which is in the Shycott Valley down near Gardez. It's about sort of the Eastern middle of the country, if you will. And the thought at the time was that, uh, bin Laden and, uh, Zahiri as number two were in the area and a lot of Al Qaeda, you know, had snuck back from Pakistan after uh, Tora Bora. So they're going to go get them, right? Now, these cave complexes they're in are stuff they used successfully in the 80s against the Soviets. So they're actually prepared positions from, you know, probably hundreds of years of, of fighting, and they're in great shape, you know. Um, so they're going to do this, and we actually had no part in it initially. We're going to leave. And... Um, then it got to be, well, hey, look, we got to put special forces teams on all of the key terrain that can observe all of the high-speed avenues of approach and exit, right? So you could call for fire on, you know, Bin Laden and Zawahiri when they try to get away, you know, kind of thing. And uh, so they needed 
our guys to do that, right? Because it was, you know, it's kind of crappy weather. It's nighttime. We're familiar with the mountains. You're going to need oxygen. So that's us. And um, a guy named Andy did, did all that work. And my job while he was doing that is, so we had a couple of flight leads, which is the kind of the lead uh, position for warrant officers in the uh, 160th. And my job was the HVT flight lead, so high-value target. So if if Bin Laden, Zawahiri, or uh, Omar shows up, uh, you know, I'm the guy that's taking the SEALs to, or, to go get him. So I'm just sort of in reserve, almost like that personal recovery. Then you had a flight lead named Chuck. He um, was quick reaction force, QRF, right? So if something bad happens to somebody, he's the guy taking a bunch of Rangers to go reinforce or, or rescue them. And this guy, Andy, took his Chinooks and he was supporting all the coalition soft, right? So you had the the Germans, the Canadians, the, the, the New Zealanders, the Aussies, you know, they were the teams that were up in the mountains uh, to call for fire. And, and back then, uh, satellite imagery isn't what it is today, right? So we had 10 meter CIB, which is like a blurry blotch of nothing, right? I mean, it's terrible. And, mm. and terrain maps, which in the terrain, um, um, topographic maps, right? So these Russian topographic one over fifties had hyper accurate contour intervals, but the reference datum was something that wasn't even in the computers, Right. So you couldn't just say, I want to go to Mike Bravo, one, two, three, four, five. You know, you had to convert right. it. And there was a program that we got from DIA to convert those. And it was a real pain in the butt. So you pretty much got coordinates from a, a normal American map, you know, uh, like an NAD 83 or something like that. And then you would have to compare it to another map visually and try to pick the right coordinate, mm. and which was tough at times. But so in doing so, with no good imagery, you know, to decide is, is this, uh, this wide contour interval, which definitely is, is flat, are there trees on it? And you couldn't tell from that kind of imagery. So we used to use this thing. It's a cold war thing called pace, primary alternate contingency emergency landing zones. Right. Mm -hmm. So each team had to pick four LZs. So if the Chinook shows up and can't land at the first one, he just automatically goes to the next and then the next and the next. Well, uh, Andy had done that with all of these coalition forces. He did this amazing, uh, I guess you like a, like a, uh, what do you call it? Like an air movement chart, you know, with all these different contingencies and people like the, the yeah, Germans like were heavier. Yeah. Like the Germans were heavier. So he'd take them to the low LZs first and then he'd work his way. It was, it was a, really a piece of art. Um, mm. but he did that. And in the first night he did it, he brought back like half the teams cause those, four LZs that each of them have picked were no good. So he goes back the next night, right? So this is kind of a factor in, in our minds that, you know, Hey, you know, we don't know where we can land in these mountains. And then, uh, so he's getting ready to do that. And the, uh, the weather comes in and they delay for, I want to say two weeks from the original date. And they tell they being, you know, somebody in the government tells all of the, uh, non-governmental organizations that, Hey, by the way, you know, so think Red Cross, the UN, USAID, that kind of stuff. Uh, Hey, by the way, in, um, in two weeks, we're going to do this big operation. You don't want to be here. Well, of course, you know, the bad guys get that word as well. So now they are ready for when the 101st comes in for their air assault, 
their LZs are zeroed in. I mean, these poor guys, you know, they're screwed. And um, that's kind of how it kicks off. And uh, the 101st is getting their ass handed to them because the enemy knows they're coming, right? And then about that time, a special forces team leading the main uh, Afghan force, a guy named Harriman, who's a warrant officer, SF warrant, uh, is identified mm-hmm. as an enemy enemy convoy, and an AC-130 uh, takes him out, right, uh, fratricide. Mm-hmm. So this is a big deal because it changes the rules of engagement throughout the rest of the campaign, uh, that operation yeah. anyway, because now, you know, things we would have shot at liberally, now it's like, ah, that might be a friendly, we don't know. And so the AC-130s were really gun-shy after, after doing that. And uh, there's mm-hmm. more of the story, you know, I found out through the years having to do with communications and such, but simple fact of the matter is they were now not willing to shoot at almost anything. And that changed my rules of engagement as well. You know, so somebody I might've shot easily, you know, now I have to kind of wait for them to shoot me first, which sounds yeah. chivalrous and it looks great in the movies. <laughs> right. You know, you hear tink, 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 you know, they're shooting at us, yeah. sir. Yeah. Oh, return fire. You know, <laughs> They yeah. shot us for it. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, in my case, you know, I had an RPG come in first, you know, because we didn't kill a guy, and uh, you know that st- started my stuff in motion. But um, yeah, so the the problem with the Anaconda was, you know, unity of command. Right, there was no one commander of that whole thing. It was really a conventional operation, and our integration into it was really kind of haphazard. And then we had people like in. Masira or something like that. We're on the satcoms, you know, trying to give directions to us, you know, but they really weren't with the the 101st guys who really knew what was going on on the ground, you know. And so it was, it was a, I think they, they do a, a a course of study on this at the uh, senior course now, you know, where they talk about, you know, the unity, unity of command and communications. You know, we had uh, a lot of communications fratricide going on, right? So a lot of jamming. And the idea was to jam push to talk comms, but everybody doesn't realize that, you know, just because you're using secure comms, you're still using a UHF or a VHF signal and still getting right. blocked, right? <laughs> so a lot of the comms that would have kept Razor 01, Chuck, from getting shot down, um, he's the guy that stayed up on the mountain, uh, never got to him, you know, and uh, there are recordings that show that, you know, words weren't passed and things like that. But, you know, the big thing is this. So I, I go down and they tell me to go pick up some seals, go to the top, go to this mountain and, uh, they'll call for fire on the rest of the valley. It's key terrain. You can see everything from up there, which is why the bad guys were already there. And, uh, to, to really shorten the story, I, I go up there, guy pops up, my gunner is like, you know, guy over here, you know, I can't tell if he's friendly or not. I'm like, all right, if he pops up again, kill him because anybody that's friendly is not going to stand there, you know, uh, right. again. Right. And unfortunately the guy popped up about 50 meters to the right and uh, hit us with an RPG at point blank range. Went right. exploded as it went through the aircraft, took out three redundant electrical systems, uh, which was all, all of them, <laughs> which are geographically separated for just such yeah. a purpose, but it got all three of them. <laughs> And the uh, the guns, the defensive armament on the aircraft are miniguns, right? They were GE electric uh, miniguns, M134s. They shot about, uh, I think it was two and 6,000 rounds a minute. 
uh, but they were rendered useless, you know, because there's no electricity. Mm. So, uh, you know, we start to take off, you know, the air, the cockpit goes black, you know, I take off cause every, all the basic systems are still operating. And, uh, as we took off, Neil Roberts, a seal, uh, fell out of the back of the ramp. He was actually kind of in motion going off the ramp as we got hit. And, uh, he had like a, you know, a 150 pound mountain rock on, you know, cause they were going to do right. stay up there for a while. It's momentum. Yeah. And my crew chief, little, a little guy, uh, grabbed onto him like something out of the movies, you know, like I'll hold on to you. No, he got pulled right out with him. Uh, but he had right. a monkey harness on, uh, gunner's mm. tether. So he's hanging from the aircraft. The seal falls onto the top of the hill. Uh, there's no hydraulics uh, because of the bullet holes. And the um, crew chief standing next to the there's a refill port. He he puts a quart of oil in there, hydraulic oil, and we regain control. And then uh, my crew chiefs up front finally regain their situational awareness from the blast, and uh, we realize somebody had fallen out. So we turn around to go back in with no guns. Um, and the, uh, it was interesting cause I, I remember looking out the window with extreme clarity. I could see you know, a piece of terrain feature called the whale and these other things. So I knew exactly where I was and, um, turned back in to, to go land again and the controls locked up again and because the hmm. fluid, we had a hole on the return side, like in hydraulics, you know, it's about 3000 PSI. So you got a hole in a hydraulic line, you know, one movement, it's gone, right? But on the return side, it didn't do anything until you move the controls. So every time I moved the controls, I lost fluid. So each can of fluid lasted about 50 seconds. And I think we had three cans on board that were, you know, like spares. So I realized I wasn't going to be able to land on the mountain, or if I did, it would be once. And we would not, I still had, you know, seals on board. So I headed for a friendly location in the valley below that, you know, I knew where we had put somebody and um, set up a rate of descent that I thought that, you know, if the controls lock up, maybe we'll survive the impact, you know, 300 foot a minute rate of descent, 70 knots. And as we got to the bottom, like the last 50 feet, I had the area in sight that I wanted to land. It was kind of on top of a little knoll and the cyclic froze in my hand. And I'm like, and then we started to mm. drift to the right. You know, so now we have lateral drift and when we hit the ground, it's going to roll and we're going to, you know, it's going to be like something out of the movies. And, you know, there's a saying in aviation, right? Never quit flying the aircraft. And um, so I couldn't move my right hand, but I pushed on the pedal, a right pedal, and I swung the nose in the direction of the drift and then it stopped moving. Mm. And then as I hit the ground at just the right angle, I lowered the thrust and we settled on the ground and there we were alive, you know, but, you know, aviate, navigate, communicate, never quit flying the aircraft. These little, you know, memory joggers for, uh, aviation, they just, uh, there's a reason for them. And, uh, yeah. we, we got picked up by my wingman about 45 minutes later. And, uh, you know, then the, the stuff on the mountain, you know, keeps happening. That's their own story. Or, uh, with Razor Zero One, yeah, I think, uh, like you said, all those all those little isms that you learn when when some, something goes bad like that, time slows down, and all those things start to make sense, and they start to yeah. start to move your, you know, your muscles start moving in ways that you didn't think that they would. You know, you yeah. just you're not even thinking about it; you're just flying. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is, so remember I talked about the um, the Chinook 
AFCS, the automatic flight control system, yeah. and uh, the aircraft is much harder to fly. Well, as a W-2, I remember being out at um, NTC flying the entire day with it turned off. Like it was a, a thing, mm. you know, it was a, you know, mm. it was training, you know, Hey, let's practice this. And then it was kind of a, a man thing, you know, like, all right, I can do it the whole day. Oh yeah, I could do it the whole day. Right. And so we did dust landings and sling loads. And this is back. You, you used to be able to do sling loads with it off. They since put that in the ATM that you couldn't do that for practice. But, uh, so we did this, you know, I, I used to do it all the time and here I am doing a dust landing at night to the side of a hill, you know, with no, instrumentation no augmentation and the afcs is off and you know some people look at it like that could never happen it's like well it happened to me and the cool thing is i actually kind of trained for it you know without knowing it it's wild all that stuff that just uh it, it matters i mean i remember we we used to do um hydraulics off when i went through the 58 course back in 04 and then you never trained it again. You know, you right. never did it in a real unit, turn off the hydraulics, but right. I lost hydraulics and you know, all those muscle memories just kicked in and it's like, Oh yeah, I remember this, you know, yeah. now it's under goggles in Afghanistan in the mountains. It's a very different environment, but at yeah. least, at least you, you're not completely, um, you know, surprised by how things feel. And, yeah. uh, I know that's been some criticism of things that have kind of changed at Rucker as far as, uh, I guess with the LUH, they can't do touchdown auto rotations anymore. Right. Uh, you know, and there's other things that just. Yeah. I, I was flying uh, the LUH there at uh, West Point, and I remember them collecting them up from the units. Like, we're going to take these to Rucker. They're going to be the primary trainer. I'm like, it is a horrible first platform right. unless you're going yeah. to get rid of the mass moment indicator, which uh, Airbus said was bullshit anyway. Uh, and. You know, you've got to give them a checklist that's similar to a real army checklist, not, you know, the civilian checklist that you got, which is, you know, it's fine, but it's not, uh, if you're looking for muscle memory and how chapter five and nine and seven and all that stuff work, you got to do that. And they didn't do any of that. So, although they did give them a mass moment indicator, which is the, the stress on the, on the main shaft, cause it's a rigid rotor system, uh, that has a bullseye. So at least now you know which way to move the side, like, uh, when I, the one I was flying had just a linear thing and you didn't know what way to move the controls to undo it, you know, but, uh, um, yeah, the, the, uh, what I wanted to say though, is that, uh, you know, the training at Rucker, you know, think of, um, remember the miracle on the Hudson, Sully, Sullenberger, right? Yeah. He landed. So he yeah. was a, a simulator trainer you know, like a primary instructor and he would teach people stuff like that. Like, you, know, you should try this, you know, and it's the same kind of stuff like that. I was saying that I was doing, you know, as an older guy, if you will, it's like, Hey, look, you might want to know how to do this. And the younger guys are like, why that would never happen. You know? And so here he <laughs> deals with what he's been playing with in the simulator, you know? And you know, it's the same thing. Like you said, you know, at Rucker, they don't do the touchdown autos and, you know, um, I mean, I remember doing those in Hueys, but didn't, you know, this stage field. And we always had a big run at the end, right? And I remember some yeah. instructor pilots that had had engine failures in the field. And they're like, you're going to land in a muddy rice paddy. You're not going to run, right. you know, down the runway. Right. You've got to come in yeah. with zero ground run, you know, and they would try to make us do it that way. But it's like, we weren't taught that way. So yeah, it was, it was always interesting to watch the IPs fight, you know, but this is how it's going to be. It'll never happen. It happened yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, I was mentioning to you before we started, you know, I, I just got my 737 rating and, uh, 
we had the the very last sim period, we'd already had our rating, so they basically just put us in a sim to do kind of weird stuff. Yeah. And one of them was um, the guy had put in a full rudder deflection for the for the aircraft. And uh, and uh, so the guy, the other guy that I'm with, he's flying, and you know, he we nearly rolled the thing upside down because he's just not you know ready for it or whatever. So uh, so then I get to try, and of course I'm ready for it. So I put a little bit more rudder than than he did, but. You know, it made me think back to when I was going through the 58 course when they would do the stuck pedal. And I don't think they do this anymore with anybody, but, you know, the, the IP would jam the pedal down in one direction and you'd have to land, you know, and you're flying sideways down the runway. And then yeah. you're manually, you know, it's like we talked about before, you manually manipulate the throttle to decrease the the engine RPM and to swing the nose back around. And you're, you're, you're screaming down sideways down the runway at 70, 80 knots. Right. Um, but but those things matter uh, and it's at least better to to have seen it and 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 have it you know demonstrated or at least feel it because yeah 20 years later when it happens that that shit'll kick in you'll re- you'll remember yeah. what it felt like yeah for sure no that's that's uh that's fascinating and uh obviously glad that it, it turned out for you the way that it did and uh you know losing hydraulics in an aircraft that needs hydraulics that's uh that's an emotional event yeah <laughs> Yeah, it was. I remember, you know, saying, you know, hey, sorry, guys, uh, we're done. You know, and I'm going, what do you yeah. mean? I remember my co-pilot trying to move the controls. He's like, I, I can't move it either. I'm like, yeah. well, there's no hydraulics guy. It, it's not going to yeah. move. But uh, that, that, I mean, that for as a 58 guy, that was the horror story of going into the 64 because it, with the 58, you could lose hydraulics and still fly. But with the 64, we had the same thing where it's like you, you've got like three control inputs and then it's it's locked. Right. And just like you said, you basically use those three to get it into a crash worthy, you know, crash survivable uh, stance and then, and then ride and, and hope that it works out for you. But yeah, oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. Well, obviously, we could spend probably hours going through all these experiences, but I know that you've uh, you've at least included some of them in the book that should be uh, coming out here hopefully soon. It's still getting its final review, as you were telling me earlier uh, but just tell us a little bit about the book, like what it's, what it's going to entail and, and all that. Sure. So the, the book, if, if it ever gets through the pre-publication process. So it talks a little bit, um, you know, it starts out uh, before 9-11, like the day before, you know, I'm at JRTC and what that felt like mm-hmm. to see that. And then um, kind of goes back a little bit just to whether well, the story is really exploits in the global war on terror and the fight for my wife's uh, prescription opioid addiction. That's why I call it the Night Stalkers Wars. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you start out really liking her in the book, you know, because she's great and supportive. And then, you know, really, I go off to Afghanistan. It talks about the horse soldiers and the hunt from bin Laden in Tora Bora and some, uh, a tanker that crashes over there, uh, air refueling tanker. We rescued the guys. And then, uh, you know, I get shot down in Anaconda. We talk in detail about Anaconda. And the problem is my wife never forgave me because um, I had an opportunity to call her before it hit the news. Like I, I was at this fob in Gardez and the CIA guy there gave me his Iridium and he said, hey, here's a sat phone. You might want to call your wife. This is about to make the news. And I'd been in a unit before where we had a, a class A, you know, an accident where somebody was killed. And I knew that I right. couldn't call back because mathematically it was going to be pretty easy to figure out who died, you know, if I call home. Right. So and my wife never forgave me for that. And she turned to, you know, uh, prescription 
meds and alcohol. And, and that kind of is interspersed through the, the book as she gets worse. But, you know, I keep going back to Afghanistan and, you know, I'm kind of the classic enabler, if you will, in her sense. But, you know, I, I dealt with, um, you know, Bo, Bo Bergdahl, you know, walking off his fob, you know, trying to rescue him, uh, the lone yeah. survivor in Operation Red Wings. Uh, you know, I did his rescue, um, you know, things things along those natures. I talked a little bit about vehicle interdiction and then, uh, you know, my wife. Uh, passed away. So I talked about that a little bit. And then, you know, the redemption I had moving up to West Point, you know, and dealing with the cadets uh, and the parachute team, you know, they were amazing. And then uh, getting remarried. So the book's kind of, you know, it comes through those subjects. Well, yeah, hopefully it, uh, it gets through the process soon. And uh, it sounds fascinating. I'm definitely going to give it a read. And uh, I'm sure many of the people listening to this will as well. Um, well, cool. I, I want to say thank you for uh, taking the time here this morning and uh, thank you for your service in very challenging times and uh, very complex environments and situations. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's terrible to hear about those, those struggles that you had to deal with, but it's good to see that, you know, you've kind of come through them. Uh, cause, cause frankly, a lot of people don't, you know, right. Right. You know, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's interesting as I find that now, I know we're to the end here, but the, um, I, you know, I've been to a couple of, I don't want to call them reunions, but I've been to some event, people's retirements, you know, uh, back at Fort Campbell and uh, talking, you know, afterwards at the parties to some of my friends who I really haven't talked to in a long time, you know, once I left uh, the community. And there are guys that are struggling that I had no idea. You know, they never gave any indication. Like I, I would drag guys into hell and back and just go like, I guess I'm the only one that's scared, you know, and these guys are right. all, you know, fine, you know. And then I find out later on, it's like, oh yeah, I had these horrible dreams after that. I thought I was gonna die. And I'm like, yeah. well, holy crap, you could have told me that. And it's like, no, we don't talk about that stuff. <laughs> he goes, now 20 years later, no. we can talk about it. But uh, it, it's interesting that the guys you don't expect uh, might have problems. No, and that's a good point. And again, I go back to there's a lot of younger listeners, and uh, it's tough. I mean, aviation's very hard because on one hand you're afraid to admit any boo-boo, whether it's physical or emotional, because you don't want to get that downslip. Um, but at the same time, man, it's your life. And, uh, and you gotta, you gotta take it for, you know, for everything it's got. And, and that, if that means admitting something or, or just asking someone for help or someone to talk to, I mean, you gotta do it. So, yeah. And I, I found it huge. You know, quite frankly, talking about it is the best medicine, you know, to, to find out yeah. that other people have the same feelings, or, uh, you know, in the Red Wings, you know, in Lone Survivor, I, I came back from that and I was with a crew chief of mine, a young kid, you know, it was an E4, and we stopped in uh, Amsterdam waiting for our, our flight. And so I said, hey, let me get buy you a beer, right? So we have a beer. And while we're sitting there, he goes, sir, I, uh, I got to tell you something. Because uh, I was scared shitless, you know, because I was the quick reaction force to the quick reaction force uh, when I got shot down. And... Uh, we were hauling ass there by 150 miles an hour. And I remember thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get there, you know, and they ended up diverting me when I was about five minutes out. So they wanted to do a different plan, but he's like, we were so scared and you were so calm. I'm like, dude, I was not calm. I said, I may look calm on the outside, but <laughs> I didn't have a clue what we we're going to do. And he's like, really? Yeah. Was, I'm glad to hear that. Cause I thought I was the only one that was you know, scared. <laughs> it's like, yep. Yeah. 
No, quit, yeah. calm quit, on the outside. Quit screaming, I'm scared too. Calm on the inside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hundred percent. No, well, that's part of that training kicks in, and you're you're scared, but you you don't know you're scared, or or you just kind of you're able to bottle it up, and then then later yeah. it starts to pour out. But well, um, that's the thing you compartmentalize it, and you know, uh, yeah. I always just say I really wasn't scared like for my life. I was always scared of failing. You know, you're right, and that's what I didn't want to do. Yeah. No, that's true. Well, thank you again so much for uh, for the time, and uh, yeah, again, look looking forward to your book, and uh, I hope everyone enjoys uh, hearing your experiences. Yeah, and you can you can learn more on uh, my website alancmac.com, and uh, it tells you a little bit more about me and the stories and more detail. And uh, I hope I gave you something decent to work with. Um, I got all kinds of stories. Usually, they come out over beer. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, this was fun. Yeah. I need to start doing these podcasts with a beer yeah. <laughs> or do like, do like the first part sober, then you can do it with a beer and you can always yeah. eliminate that. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, I did appreciate it. Yeah. You know, the offer to do this. Thank you very much. And you're very, uh, easy to talk to. Well, I appreciate yeah. I'll put a, I'll put a link to your, uh, to your website in the show notes as well for people so they can follow that. Okay. But, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. And many thanks to Alan for taking the time out during the week and uh, talking to me about his experiences in Afghanistan and uh, the 160th. And, of course, probably hours worth of, of more uh, cool stories. So, uh, you know, maybe we'll, we'll have him come back here in the future. Uh, but, uh, yeah, big thanks to him for, for sharing that with us. And hopefully his book will get through a review with the uh, Department of Defense soon. And uh, everybody listening can, can give that a read. So a couple things on my mind I want to share um, I'll be honest with you, I was kind of struggling with the podcast of getting back into it, kind of being away from it for a while. Um, it, it is, it's not a hard job by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it's talking, uh, and more importantly, it's just kind of listening. Uh, but it is hard to track down people to, uh, to do the interviews. And, and sometimes, you know, you, you talk to somebody and they're, they're interested in doing it. Then they, they ghost you and they disappear, um, or they change their mind or whatever. So it's a sort of constant struggle of going from from one guest to the next. So uh, it does kind of put me down in the dump sometimes, where it's like, ah, man, do I, you know, how much do I want to keep doing this? Uh, but then I get a, a message like this, and I, I want to read this to you guys because this came into me at the perfect time, as sometimes these emails and, and messages do. This came to me through uh, Discord. Uh, it says, "Hey, my name is Jameson. Uh, I am 18 years old, and I live in the uh, little northeastern state of Maine." I do not know if you will read this, but I just wanted to let you know that September of 2021, I decided to apply for the Warrant Officer Flight Training Program. I am a senior in high school currently, and I came across the Low Level Hell podcast while doing some of my own research on Army aviation. As my packet got filled out and I went to MEPS to get flight physicals far from home, I enjoyed listening to your podcast and watching your DCS videos, which got me turned on to DCS, which is Digital Combat Simulator if you guys aren't familiar with that. Uh, though I would not call myself a capable virtual pilot at this point. That's all right. Uh, neither would I. Uh, today, after months of traveling all over New England and doing the mounds of paperwork that go with the packets, I received my orders and I've been accepted into the program. Uh, yeah. Uh, first of all, congratulations, Jameson, on that uh, huge accomplishment. Uh, that is a big deal. And we're proud of you. And uh, please feel free to uh, message us as training goes on and let us know how things go. Uh, but I appreciate messages like that because, again, and I've said this in the past, 
you know, it is easy to kind of lose motivation and, and lose your uh, lose your way when you're doing this kind of stuff. And you start to think, that, well, maybe no one really listens or maybe no one really cares. Even though I can see the numbers, you know, I know how many people listen and things. But uh, still, you know, you just kind of get into the, the dumps sometimes. And uh, that message came at a great time. So, Jameson, thank you for sending that. I appreciate that. Uh, it really means a lot to me. Now, as I promised, uh, kind of an update on me, if you care. Uh, I was hired by a little airline called iAero uh, or Swift. They kind of went through a, a, a name change. It's a long story short. Uh, but I, I say small company. It's got about 40 planes. Uh, but they uh, fly the 737, uh, various types of the 737. So uh, back in April, mid-April, I started with them and uh, went through all the ground school for a couple weeks up in Greensboro, North Carolina. And then they sent us down to Miami, Florida, and we did the uh, simulators and everything we needed to do to get uh, training completed with the 737. So if you follow me on uh, Facebook, and uh, I think I posted it on Twitter as well, you know that I completed my uh, airline uh, transport pilot certification and the 737 rating type rating uh, at the same time down there in Miami. So. Uh, those big, uh, exciting times, a lot of fun, uh, a lot of early mornings. I had a very weird schedule. I was getting up at like uh, 4 o'clock in the morning to get to the simulator by about 5, 5.30, and then uh, getting back to the hotel at about 9.30 in the morning and just having the whole day to, to sit around. So it was, it was sort of exhausting in that sense that I didn't have much to do. And yes, you're in Miami, but at the same time, when, when you need to go to bed at like 8 o'clock at night, there's not a whole lot to do. Uh, plus, when you're my age going out, you know, it's, it's not... Not exciting anymore, uh, but it was a good time uh, nonetheless. Met some interesting people. We had a class of only eight of us, and uh, six of us were all former military pilots, and five of us, I think, were all helicopter pilots. So uh, it was an interesting transition for all of us to learn how to fly the big jets and uh, and do all that stuff. And it's a very different world, some very different things. But uh, right now, basically, I'm home uh, waiting for the company to get some approvals through the process. In fact, I just talked to them today, just trying to figure out what's going on. Cause I've been home for, like I said, about a week and a half or so at this point and almost two weeks now that I think about it and, uh, still getting paid, but, uh, not flying, just kind of waiting for the word to go out and, uh, and do all my flights with the check pilot. So I've never actually flown a 737. I've only done the simulator stuff. So just think about that, uh, that those pilots flying those big jets, uh, they can get a rating and they've never actually touched the real jet. So, it's a very different world, but it, it makes a lot of sense financially. I mean, you can't just take a, a 737 or something and uh, and fly it around without having some some cargo or passengers or some reason for it to fly. I mean, just the, the cost alone would be prohibitive. So uh, simulators are pretty interesting. They're full motion, and uh, I think I've got some video. I don't know if I've posted it, but maybe I'll post that up on the uh, Facebook page later. Anyhow, I'll wrap this up. Uh, I guess the last thing I'll say is, you know, some terrible uh, things happened uh, this week in Texas. And uh, some some small children lost their lives due to some... I don't even know how to describe it. Um, there's a lot of evil and a lot of uh, mental health issues in the world. And, you know, regardless of what your stance is on guns and gun control and things... I think we can all agree that that mental health itself is something that really needs to be examined and taken a look at. And uh, if you know someone that needs help, you, you really need to, to help them. And if you yourself need help, then I can't stress enough that you need to say something to someone because things like this, unfortunately, is not new and unfortunately will probably not be the last time either. Uh, but uh, prayers go out to those families and uh, I'm trying to think of some things to 
to do here with my own little slice of the uh, media empire of what I can do to maybe help uh, help those people out somehow. But uh, more to that, uh, more more on that as as time goes by, and I kind of think through what I can do. Uh, but if you have a way to to support uh, financially, I'm sure there's a million different ways you can do something to to help these families in a time that you know, as a father of four children, a couple of them the ages that we're talking about. I, I can't even wrap my head around it. I can't imagine what they're going through. So please keep them in your prayers or whatever you do to honor people. And uh, thanks a lot for listening. I don't mean to end it on a on a down note, but uh, you know these are very real things that unfortunately we seem to be having to deal with more and more, and we just need to find a way out of it. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later. <laughs>